Okay, I'm recording now. Okay, Tori, the floor is yours. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to our final installment of the Association for Middle East Children's and Youth Studies book discussion digital author series. Um, it's a pleasure to see you all here. I don't know all of you personally, but I look forward to the discussion. Um, we are, of course, hosting you from the intimacy of our living rooms and studies, which Suad Joseph just described as her paradise. So welcome also to Suad Joseph, who uh, needs no introduction, but I'll begin by introducing myself again and then, and then introduce her work. Um, my name is Tori Brykolsky, and I am a graduate student and um, a graduate student board member for this association at, at University of California, Davis. And it is my pleasure to welcome you. Um, we're going to ask that you keep your mute, your voices on mute for the first half of the conversation and your cameras on. Uh, we'd like to be able to see you while we're chatting, if you'd like. Um, and the second half of the conversation will be open for audience participation, so we'll facilitate that. Um, of course, Saw Joseph is a scholar who's whose work in many ways exceeds introduction. I've spent a couple of days now thinking about how to introduce her. Um, and I thought I would begin with an, a quick anecdote about this, this book that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I, I remember when we first started working on it, it was 2014 and I was a graduate student researcher and protests were, were sparking in Beirut and Suad Joseph was there. Uh, to give a talk inaugurating the beginning of the, the Intersectional Feminist Gender Studies Project program um, at the Lebanese American University. And she was there giving a talk about the power of storytelling and the Constitution. I don't know if you remember this, but it was this magical talk that weaved together uh, theory and history and really power uh, to, to paint the Lebanese American University youth a picture of other ways of telling stories. And uh, as the editor of more than 18 books and the author of pages of, of articles, she's certainly given us stories to think with. And this book is the most, the most recent version. Um, it is a 26 chapter volume about Arab families, critical reviews going through different countries and different themes. Um, and Perhaps by beginning, we can start with the primary method of each chapter, which is anthropology. Um, Swa Joseph is, of course, the distinguished research professor of anthropology and gender and sexuality and women's studies at UC Davis. So perhaps, Swad, hello, welcome. Welcome to this association and to this book study. Um, might you start with anthropology and its approach to theory to begin the ground of this book? conversation in the method. Um, perhaps you could bring us back to your own dissertation research and how you were trained to pay attention to the ways in which Arab families matter. Um, and made this book. Well, thank you. First, thank you for the Association for Middle East uh, Children and Youth Studies, especially to Heidi and Dylan for organizing this and Tori for carrying out the interviews. I've uh, been very, very fond of this organization, having been on the board for, uh, in its founding years, and I'm just thrilled to see the way it is uh, uh, developing and carry on research and connecting scholars to each other. So thank you all. 
So back to dissertation research, somehow in many ways, I feel like I never left it, uh, but uh, I mean, you always gather more data than you ever will use when you're doing field work. Uh, but interestingly, uh, there was nothing in my training that prepared me, to, uh, my formal training as an anthropologist that prepared me to do research on Arab families. I was at Columbia University's in the late 60s. I arrived there in 67. And many of you will know the 68 strikes was just a few months away. Um, and it was uh, in a department that had no women and no feminism. And in fact, at that point, uh, the second wave of feminism had not quite hit academia. It was about to, uh, eminently, but it hadn't yet. So there were no courses on women and gender. There was certainly nothing specifically on family. Uh, it was a department that was focused on materialism and on ecology. Andrew Vida was a big name at that time. Uh, there was actually, uh, uh, and Marvin Harris, materialism. Uh, there was actually no one who did Middle East studies either. So the closest person was Robert Murphy, who did work on the Tuareg, and he became my advisor, a marvelous, marvelous mentor. And they certainly didn't teach methods. Uh, um, as I said, it's an all-male department, and they kind of looked down at methods. Margaret Mead, you may remember, was never a member of the department. She was at the uh, American Museum of Natural History. And, uh, but she did teach courses periodically at Columbia, and she taught one on methodology. And I, uh, one of my regrets in life is that I didn't stick with the course. I attended some of the lectures and then decided, for whatever reason, that to not to continue. Uh, uh, so uh, it, I think if I, there's any, if I were to trace where the intuitive knowledge of how to do field work came from, it certainly wasn't from training at Columbia in anthropology, uh, but I think it was my own training in my own family. And particularly my mother, who was an absolutely brilliant uh, observer of people, she's a brilliant woman, but also a brilliant observer. And every time we had family gatherings, she and my dad would sit and, and analyze every word, every uh, gesture, every glance of anyone toward another one for hours after the event. And eventually she would start doing that with me and my sister. So I learned that you've got to pay attention to not just what people say, you've got to actually record in your mind what people are say, because later on there's gonna be a conversation about who said what to whom and, and how you understand it. And you have to pay attention to body movements, gestures, because it was a culture of indirection and people communicated through all of these indirect means. So I actually was had excellent training that was wonderful for field work, but it came from my family rather than uh, from um, from uh, a field work, from a field training at an anthropology. Um, and if I think about, you know, why specifically family? Why did I end up studying family? I didn't go to study family. I went to study the politicization of religion. Uh, but I fell into this neighborhood. Uh, and I have to say it was probably, and I was not a feminist when I went to do my research. Um, it was the women in Camp Trad in Burj Hamoud who taught me feminism not through any formal discourse, but simply in the way in which they lived the, their lives and the way in which they took hold of their, their, their own families. <clears throat> they made me aware of how important what they did was for community life. Uh, and probably I became interested and cued into uh, looking at family, family relationalities, 
because of the way in which I was absorbed into the families in Burj Hamoud. It was a, such an amazingly powerful experience. It was like, like I was just literally absorbed. <laughs> it's like, uh, like something thirsty and just drinking up everything around it into these families and made to feel like I was a member of the family. And probably the most profound experience of that field work was understanding how familiar it all was, literally familiar. Uh, uh, and only after I came back, I began to think about, I came back from fieldwork in 73, I began to think about you know, what was it that had happened because the cultural shock for me was not going to Lebanon, but was coming back to New York, uh, especially coming back to New York in 1973, as opposed to having the, the 70, 67, 70, 68 years. Uh, that I was there, which was a profound period. So coming back, I had to think about what was so powerful in my relationships with the people on the ground there. Uh, and it was, uh, num one, number one, that. And number two, looking at my data and realizing that overwhelmingly my data was about women. And I had not at all realized that when I was there. I had bumped into another graduate student who was doing research, and she was taught to do something called network analysis. Neither of us knew much what this was, but we kind of taught each other and taught ourselves. And I ended up finding that the data that I got through what I was then calling network analysis became the most important data that I had, but it was overwhelmingly about women. And I had to understand it. And fortunately, uh, Joan Vincent, who was <clears throat> teaching at Barnard at the time, and uh, had been a fellow graduate student, but then became a professor, uh, mentored me and was willing to support me in focusing on women. And ultimately, I ended up doing a dissertation that focused on the ways in which women were a challenge to sectarianism, not at all what I had intended to go out to do. So it was, it was I wasn't taught to do fieldwork, and there wasn't taught methodology. I wasn't taught about family. There was no feminism at Columbia. It was we were in a field that was boiling with expectation at the time that I entered it. And I, I couldn't have wanted, as I look back at my career, I couldn't have wanted to be any place other than Columbia at that time. I couldn't have wanted to be any place other than New York at that time. Uh, and I couldn't have wanted to be in any other time. It was, a, it was an absolutely, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, watershed moment in this country's history in the history of anthropology uh, and in my own uh, personal history. So uh, it was that during that experience that I, coming back with all of this data and then getting a job at Hofstra University, I was asked to teach a course on sex roles. I had no clue what such a course would be, but I said, of course I would because I wanted the job. And then I started asking around what uh, anybody knew about this and somebody told me about a new scholar who just accepted a position at New School for Social Research, who was then Raina Ryder, and we know as Raina Rapp. And uh, she immediately came up, taught, gave me a mini course in gender studies, and invited me into Marxist feminist reading groups uh, that included people like Karen Sachs and Jerry Sider and Sherry Ortner and eventually Gail Rubin. And of course, Raina, we basically were teaching each other. So I, we were inventing feminism, inventing notions of selfhood as we were doing, uh, as the country was awakening to a different way of, of being in the world. 
it was an amazing time. Um, and I, I think it wasn't so much my training at Columbia, but simply being at Columbia that was, that was critical at that time. I love the stories of 1960s and 70s Columbia, thank you. Um, you speak of absorption into Camp Trod, and, and I think about my second question, which is about the text itself, which is a country by country review of the state of scholarship on families. But then it also concludes with a series of thematic chapters, the last of which centers transnational Arab families. Um, so then I come back to Camp Trod and I remember your absorption comment and I think about the fact that so many of the people in the neighborhood you were living in were migrants from elsewhere. They had come from elsewhere. They were transnational in the sense that um, there was movement and splitting. And so I wonder if you could uh, speak to the familial dynamics and practices that always cross state boundaries that you speak about in this book by sharing with us the story of one transnational Arab family that you know and describe how their lives speak to the, the broader arguments of the book. Let me take you to a village. Uh, Burj Hamoud is, uh, as you know, a very dense urban area. Uh, but the village I did my uh, uh, studies of child socialization, I've been working there since 1994, um, was a fascinating, is a fascinating place because in fact, a large number of the people have migrated. Uh, it happens to be the village I was born in. Uh, uh, I regretted in some ways that I never did field work there earlier. But when I, when I went back in 1994 to 1993, actually, uh, to reignite some of my research, I realized that that would be an important place to do research. And at that time, I had a, an eight-year-old daughter. And it was important that I myself was a parent in order to be able to do research that I was doing. Because the relationship with my daughter opened doors to people being willing to talk with me about parenting and, and uh, child socialization. And it was through the, the study of these families in the village that I came to understand transnational families, because literally half of the half of the families that I that, that were the core of my research project, uh, which I started in 1994, by 2000 had left, had migrated, overwhelmingly to Canada, New Jersey, uh, some to Europe, but mainly to the United States or Canada. So I I had to decide, am I gonna shut down the study? Because I, I, the whole point was to longitudinal study of these children from the time they were little to the time they were adult to learn how they, know, how they learned their notions of citizenship and rights. Um, and most of them were still adolescents at most when they, or, or even younger than adolescents when their parents moved them to Canada or the United States. So I decided to follow them. Uh, so I did several interviews with uh, several families who had moved to Canada uh, and some who had moved to the States. And it, uh, I'll, talk to, I'll tell you about two families. One of them had uh, uh, two, two children, two boys, moved to New Jersey, uh, and then had a third child while they were there. Uh, and as the boys got older, uh, they became, quote, Americanized. They started challenging their parents in ways the parents felt terrifically uncomfortable with and finally the father said you're going back we're not we're not having uh we're, we're not having this you're going to go back and what threw them was at one point the the, the older boy who was quite rebellious actually called 911 on his mother and she was so 
terrified that you could actually, a child could actually call 911 and police would show at your door and challenge your relationship with your, your children was enough to send them back to Lebanon. And the whole story of the 911 became a village story. Everyone started talking about, in America, kids can call 911. And it was, it was like a terror story there. Um, so she, was, she went back, uh, but she was unhappy there. And then when, in 206, when the, uh, Israel invaded, uh, she used that opportunity to return to, the, to, to um, New Jersey and raised, ended up raising the, her children there. But they maintain constant, they go back and forth. They have, they have a condo there in the village. Uh, they spend most summers there. And the people in the village go and spend two, three, four months with them in New Jersey. And similarly, another family uh, that was also in, in New Jersey came to the States with uh, two, two boys and a girl. Uh, uh, and, and by the way, they, they live not far from each other. So there's a whole bunch of people from this village who live in uh, uh, New Jersey, not far from each other, so they're connected to each other. And in this second family, uh, one of the daughters eventually went back to Lebanon, got married, and stayed in Lebanon. And they went back and built their, uh, remodeled their house, so it's almost like a villa, it's an exquisite place. And, and that is, to go back to your question of how does this, uh, how do these family stories reflect some of the patterns we see in the book is that that's been the story of Lebanon. Families go, but they never intended to go. They always intended to come back because their real draw is, is the family, the village, the relationships. And so they eventually, if they do well, they go back and they build their, their villas in the, in the villages or they buy an apartment or they uh, re remodel an old family home. And they keep going back and forth, back and forth. Uh, uh, the, the second family I told you about actually intended to go back permanently. And then the leader crashed. So they returned to the States. So this constant story of, of, of uh, movement back and forth among the families keeps them connected in a way that, that really broadens and breaks through the boundaries of what we might consider uh, you know, a, a family unit. Because uh, the households can have, you know, a brother may come and spend a year or two or three living with another brother in New York because they're, or New Jersey because they're trying to get, uh, get settled. Or the family goes back and lives with the parents uh, back in the village. Uh, and that's a very, very common pattern in Lebanon's history. Uh, so this idea that we coined this term transnational family is an, actually a very old phenomenon uh, in Lebanon's history. Families of uh, Akram Khatar, I think, did a beautiful uh, job in his book explaining that phenomenon. Uh, so I, there are lots of other stories. Uh, I, let me share one other little story because I think it's it's uh, indicative of uh, what migration and transnationalism means. And I'm not talking about refugees because that's a whole other story for Lebanon, for Libya, for Syria, for Iraq, and so forth. But um, these are families who moved to to Ottawa. Uh, during the period of my of my research, and I went to follow up with them, and they're on Facebook all the time, every day, all day long, constantly sharing stories with each other about what they're doing. They know when they go to the market. They know what they're having for breakfast. They know when somebody's come to visit. They're, one of them even told me, she says, "I know more about my sister right now than I knew when she when I was living uh, 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 ten minutes away from her." Because they're constantly sharing on Facebook. So I. What transnationalism means, or what my family means, or what you know, movement means, 
in the day of social media is entirely different phenomena than my family's generation of migration or those uh, earlier. And then we have this book, which is also produced by all these people from all over the world, many of whom are in the region, others of whom are in California. And it's in itself was a process of bringing stories together about families. Um, how did the idea for the book begin? And what were those first conversations between people like, and what was the most difficult of part of the process? What was the most delightful? Well, the, the book was actually by invitation. The Duha International Family Institute invited me to do a report for them. Uh, and, but I think they weren't quite sure what they really wanted. So we had a number of conversations uh, by Skype at that time. And eventually uh, I suggested to them that what they really needed was a book. They asked me for a proposal. I came up with a proposal. And uh, during the conversations, I suggested two volumes one that would be country by country and one that would be thematic. And they liked that idea, so we actually wrote up a contract, uh, but then they changed their mind. <laughs> so a third of the way through, I had finished soliciting the country by country uh, authors, but was about a third of the way of soliciting the thematic chapters when they told me they wanted only one volume and not two. Uh, so I had to stop. So uh, the thematic chapters, if I, if I had known I was only gonna have that many, I might have done them a little bit differently, but actually it turned out uh, just, just fine. Uh, so uh, the way it started was then through an invitation. I, you know, but frankly, at some point, I probably would have done a book like this anyway, because it already had been on my mind for some time. Uh, this just gave me the opportunity to do it at that point uh, rather than, uh, than later. The difficult part was finding authors for certain countries because the, the research on Arab families is very uneven. Probably the hardest single country to find an author for was Libya. Uh, there's been very little research on Libya, period. Uh, but research, and a lot of the research is political and external, uh, uh, but research specifically on family uh, was scarce. So it took quite a few um, networking uh, opportunities, asking somebody who asked somebody who asked somebody who asked somebody to find uh, Annette who, uh, uh, um, who did the chapter. And even while she was doing the chapter, she uh, found it difficult. And so if you remember, we uh, gave her some support in terms of research assistant time. So that was the hardest part. There's certain countries where there's less research, Somalia, um, uh, but, uh, and the uh, Gulf countries, it was a little bit more difficult to find authors for the Gulf countries. I, I, there, I couldn't do a separate chapter on each one, so I tried to group them in ways that made sense, uh, but uh, finding authors who knew those countries uh, equally and could get at the research, <coughs> that, that took some time. But the delightful part was when actually re reading the chapters, and you were reading with me, Tori, because uh, they were stunning. They were, despite all of the concerns that authors had while they were doing the research as to whether there was enough um, scholarly work out there, they actually produced fantastic analyses of what was there and what they found. And they actually ended up finding more than they thought they were going to find. Uh, I think the most stunning moment for me was when I saw it all assembled. It ended up being 2,100 manuscript pages. So it was a, it was a real <laughs> stack. We had to put it into two boxes. Uh, 
among which was 500 pages that was a bibliography that we had spent 15 years putting together for the Arab Families Working Group and they were very, very kind to let me publish it uh, and, uh, and uh, in the book. Um, probably the most exhaustive bibliography on Arab Families, as I said, it took us 15 years to compile it. Uh, and it was 500 pages, manuscript pages. So seeing it all assembled uh, and, and walking it to the post office and shipping it off was probably the most delightful moment. Mabruk, congratulations. It's a lovely book. Uh, and, you know, it occurs to me that as Arab families get reviewed in the text, you also do really important conceptual work um, that isn't necessarily named as such. So I'm going to ask you a conceptual question about the historical present, which is uh, given the particular instantiation of crisis facing youth, and I would say Arab families uh, locally and globally today, what might an Arab family studies approach to COVID-19 be? Now that's a, a, a really uh, interesting and, and difficult question. I, I don't know that I have a um, answer that I'm confident in, uh, partly because we're all learning to do real research under conditions of pandemic, but that what people who've worked in that area over the past even 40, 50 years have had to learn is to do research under conditions of violence. Because that whole area has been, well, since 48, if you will, uh, in turmoil. Uh, Lebanon's civil war began in 75. There had been two wars prior to that. Uh, the uh, um, attack on I Iraq in 1991, then the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the uh, Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring, 2010-11, and then the events of this past year, 2019. It's an area that is in tremendous turmoil and has produced more refugees than any other region of the world uh, in the contemporary period. Uh, so it's an area that, that fieldwork has been uh, a challenge. You've got to be committed. You've got to really want to do it. You've got to really care about it. You just don't go to a place uh, that, has, that is engaged in a war unless there's something compelling to you about it. So under COVID, uh, it, it's uh, trying to imagine sheltering in place or keeping six foot distances from people that uh, are not sheltering with you in a place like Burj Hamoud. Burj Hamoud, most of the streets, if you put two cars side by side, you block the street. And it's very densely populated. You're not going to get six foot distances from people walking past you. You just, it's not going to happen. The streets are very densely walked. Uh, and the apartments are typically one or two bedroom apartments in a place like Burj Hamoud. And they typically have four to eight people living in them. So how do you social, and then the, the, most of the buildings are built. So there's like two to three apartments per floor. So you come out, there's no space. So uh, I, I cannot imagine that social distancing has been uh, easy, must have been quite a challenge um, in a place like Bush Hamoud. In the village, it's different. Most of the people live in separate houses or they have apartments, there's space around them, they can walk. 
but people live tend, still tend to live in close proximity to families. And those haven't changed. People are still congregating with their families. So what would field work look like? Uh, I, I cannot imagine field work in a place like Burj Hamoud right now. I think you would be putting people at risk and putting yourself at risk because of the density of, uh, of, the, of, the, um, uh, of the population there. Um, in the villages, you would pretty much have to be sheltering with the people there. But since the sheltering with people are large communities, networks of kin, it's conceivable. It's conceivable. Uh, it, it would depend on what relationships you already had, if you already were in there. If you aren't there, it's probably much more difficult to establish those relationships. In a place like, it, it, uh, like Lebanon, over so many people are on the internet. So many people have cell phones, uh, but many do not. So who are you interested in doing research with? Um, the two million or so refugees that live in Lebanon, this tiny small country, uh, many of whom are in camps, many of whom are not in camps. Um, I, I think what, 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 if anything, family, uh, uh, has intensified under COVID, as it has here, uh, as it has in, in many countries. So I, I, can, I, I don't know that I can with confidence say what an approach to family studies would be, uh, but one would have to be, I think, comfortable in being themselves a member of those families in order to even have access, I would think. A lovely beginning. I look forward to continuing to think about this with everybody here. I'm going to conclude with my favorite part of the text, and it gets at this final question a little bit as well. Um, the, my favorite part begins in the conclusion that you wrote, Suad, and it begins at the bottom of page 483 for folks that are citing. Um, and I'll quote, it's the first two paragraphs of the section Fall of the Fathers. Now again, the relevance of this being under COVID-19 conditions uh, and if family has intensified under COVID, the question of um, political patriarchy, once again, becomes really, really important in very personal and, and different ways. So you write, the Arab Spring of 2011 saw the fall of a number of heads of state in the Arab region, including Hosni Mubarak of Egypt, uh, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya. With them fell the presidential ambitions of their sons. And then you pose some questions. Has the rejection of these dictators also meant a rejection of patrilineal political descent of authority? Is this the fall of political patriarchies or the fall of the fathers, you say? Is this the fall of political patriarchies, oh yeah, the fall of the fathers and are new patriarchies emerging, new genealogies of power? Where will Arab states produce new structural forms of political power? Uh, I wanted to conclude with this because it moves me. Um, I grew up in the Arab Spring in Lebanon and the, the youth movement in that part of the world really did, I think, transform much about how we understand political futures. So my final question is with an eye towards the imaginary, and I would say maybe the magical and maybe even the divine, I'd like to conclude by asking if you might entertain a speculative yes, have the fathers fallen? And if so, what have your studies of, of Arab families taught about what might emerge in their place? 
Um, and in particular, a more theoretical approach might be what's the value of a micro theory of politics, economy, society, and religion that begins in the household and advances more feminist futures? And does this theory have a name? <laughs> it's a wonderful question. It's such a Tory question. <laughs> I love it. Um, I don't think the fathers have fallen. There was a moment where one could have thought that. Uh, in fact, what appears to have happened in the past uh, decade since the so-called Arab Spring is that uh, many, if not most of those governments have become even more autocratic, uh, more securitized, militarized, uh, more, uh, I mean, the, re the regime of Sisi in Egypt, uh, the control of the press, NGOs, uh, far, in many ways far more repressive than the Mubarak regime in many ways. Um, what's happening in Syria, uh, the uh, Iraq. Uh, it, I, I don't, uh, I, one cannot with confidence say that the fathers are gone <laughs> or that patriarchy, if you, I, it's a, patriarchy as you know is a term that is highly problematical. But if you use it to mean uh, that the power assumed by males and elders that is rationalized in uh, kinship idioms, then that kind of a power is enduring for the moment. Uh, but in the, in the context of this state-level repression is that families, that, uh, individuals un turn increasingly to their families. I mean, who would they turn to? So it's, it's the families, the neighbors, the networks, the communities that they have become their security, as they always have been. Most of those states don't, do not deliver the kinds of social services that are needed uh, on the ground uh, or inadequately deliver those services. And so the, the citizen return to their, their families. Uh, but it's also the case that family and state are very intertwined socialities. States use the idioms of families and, and families uh, lean to, into the structures of law and regulation that uh, states generate that uh, tell them what, you know, when, who they can marry, uh, at what age they can marry, uh, when they can start working, whether they can vote, whether they can uh, travel, who, they can, who can pass citizenship on. All of these things are within the realm of the state to regulate that have direct impact on the family. So states always want to shape the families or the socialities which we end up calling our families, uh, that, they, that they need in order for, to, to govern and produce their economies. And families at the same time, and individuals within the families or networks of communities or neighborhoods, are in the business of, of trying to, on the one hand, accommodate, on the other hand, invent and create and become something that they need for themselves. Uh, uh, but when you look at the turmoil in this region, Palestine, 70 years, Lebanon, 45 years, Syria, years, Libya, 10 years, Iraq, 17 years, oh, Yemen, another eight years or so. Constant turmoil uh, with government, uh, the uncertainties of governance, the, the uh, lack of security, basic securities. Uh, throughout this region, people want to vote for it with their feet. And what they what that means is they want to leave. 
They want to go someplace where they can have at least uh, quietude and the possibility of, of, of jobs and supporting their families. And uh, apropos of your question about youth or the implication in your question about youth, uh, as we know, in many of these countries, 60 to 65 to 70 percent of the population is 29 years old or younger. It is the youngest region of the world. And, and it's the youngest this region has ever been itself. And yet, the rulers are all much older. So there's this huge discrepancy between the reality of the population, which is very young, falling uh, apart. So youth have very little to look forward to in terms of jobs and professions and education and so forth. Um, and a stagnation, uh, if, if anything, a increased rigidifying of, uh, of institutions of governance, that that tension cannot remain. The fact that Lebanon burst out in, uh, uh, in 2019, October, November, December, and, and may have gone on had it not been for COVID interrupting what was uh, the events there. Uh, I, th I think that's going to be happening in other places as well and may happen again in Lebanon. You cannot contain a population, especially a young population, when they have so little hope for the future. And when the possibilities of escape, of exit, of, of removal remain so heavy, smaller and smaller, at a time when you could easily go, leave and go to Europe or Canada or Australia or South America or the States, that was a different moment it's much more difficult for those people to leave now, uh, not only because of COVID and because of the um, uh, economic conditions, but most of those most countries are no longer as welcoming of immigrants as they were a generation or so back. So you've got a pressure cooker going on in those countries uh, with political power being consolidated increasingly, wealth being consolidated. In most of those countries, the top 1% uh, controls anywhere from 70 to 80 to 90 to 95% of the GNP of those countries. Wealth concentrated, power concentrated at the top at a certain uh, age and class and, and gender group, and yet the population uh, exploding in youth and, and need. It, it, it's a formula for a, another explosion that one hopes will be productive. I mean, there was a great hope with the events in Lebanon in 1919 because they were the first time in the contemporary period where there was a unified uh, commitment to anti-sectarianism, where everyone on the streets was saying, we do not want to be governed by religious sectarianism. We want a an open democratic society. It was a, it was a um, euphoric moment. Uh, and maybe, and just as Tahrir was a euphoric moment, uh, I don't think those, those kinds of events, I truly believe that those kinds of events are not in the rear view mirror. They are yet to come. Maybe I'll stop on that point. Thank you, Suad. And I think if there's a framework moving forward for an anti-sectarian vision, it's Arab family studies. So thank you for your work. Um, we open up now the field for conversation. Uh, if you have questions, I think we can just field, right? There's no chat function, so maybe we just raise hands. I 
I could ask a quick question. Thank you very much for the lovely interview. Um, and thank you, Suad, so much for all your work in um, founding the Association of Middle East Children Youth Studies. I'm wondering if, if you could just speak um, from your perspective on the connection between family studies and um, children and youth studies. Uh, well, most, uh, most children are born into families and most are raised into families. But we, uh, we don't, what we need and do not yet have, I think, are adequate ground-based theories. So I mean by that, theories that emerge from doing fieldwork in the region. Mostly we are carrying with us, you know, we each have our knapsacks when we go out to the field and the knapsack includes a lot of concepts that we were trained in in graduate school or undergraduate or that we just read. And they're Western concepts of family, of psychoanalysis, of, of so child socialization, of learning uh, uh, patterns and so forth. Uh, very few of these have been rigorously tested uh, and even less effort has been put into um, ground up uh, theorization. That is uh, doing research and letting the research tell you what the, be what the best and most appropriate way is to explain that uh, data that you get from the region itself. Uh, so, I, so I think what where we are at now is a very opportune moment uh, because on the one hand there is so much need for family people are cleaving onto the family at the same time there is so much disruption of family i mean it, it's it's a it's a really i used this word before it's really an explosive moment and i don't mean to mean mean by that that just the wars and the violence but explosives in terms of structural possibilities for new forms emerging at this moment is is uh, quite profound uh, and in the midst of all of that at the center to all of that are is this burgeoning youth population the children and their need for education for socialization for training and the way they turn to their families to support them through that uh, uh, so I, I i think we are at a moment where uh, the richness of the possible research that could be done on socialization, on youth, on selfhood, on subjectivities, uh, in the context of the structural and uh, changes that are taking place materially around them, uh, it's, a, it's a very rich, rich moment to, to investigate those relationships. Very nice question, thanks Heidi. Andrea or Andrea? <laughs> I, I'd like to ask about these transnational migration families. And uh, surely the experience for the second generation is very different from the first. And by the third generation, it's even more different. Um, how do, maybe you could talk about those differences and, and tell me when. Is there a point when the connection gets lost back to the village? A very interesting question. Is it Andrea or Andrea? Andrea? Is that uh, my question? Andrea. Andrea. Andrea, yeah. Um, uh, very interesting question because I think we're in a very different kind of time uh, generationally. It, the pattern historically has been uh, the 
you know, first generation is very well connected. They pass it on to the second generation. By the third generation, it's, it's lost. And the fourth generation then becomes nostalgic and maybe wants to find out roots or so, something like that. But because of social media now, and because of the ease of travel, you know, barring the pandemic, what I'm noticing and watching these trans uh, transgenerational, uh, transnational families is that it's going, uh, of course, I haven't, I, I'm not at the point where I can watch a third or fourth generation because I started with these families when they were, uh, had, had their kids were babies, um, is that they're going back. They're going back and forth. And the people in the villages are coming. And the people in the cities are coming to visit them. <coughs> so it's, it's not that the people here are working hard to keep the connections there because the people there are working as hard to keep the connections and the connections are not as hard as they used to be. It's not a matter when, when, when my family came, you wrote a letter and then you waited weeks to get the, the response. Now you, you know, you turn on zoom, you turn on Skype, you turn on, uh, uh, WhatsApp, you know, everyone's connected with WhatsApp. In fact, the trigger for the Lebanon, uh, events in, in October 2019 was, was the tax on WhatsApp. No, you don't touch, don't touch WhatsApp. Don't put a tax on WhatsApp. Everybody's connected to WhatsApp, or a lot of people are. So because it's so much easier to be connected, then uh, the, the, the anticipation of when will that connection gets lost, I, I think it's very hard to predict. Uh, partly because you know, we have been for most of my adult life anyway, been talking about globalization and we're gonna become world citizens and we're gonna lose national identities. Well, that hasn't happened. If anything, there's been a more and more fragmentation. Partly, partly I think because of willful efforts to create fragmentation. So the question then for, could be in terms of whether there'll be a point in which a generation comes that they forget is, uh, the connection to whether it's Lebanon or Syria or Algeria, quote, the, the old country, the country of origin, depends an awful lot with what's happening in terms of globalization. Will, will we reach a point where being Lebanese or being Maronite or being Arab or, or any other designation means what it means today? Uh, or will we have some other identities emerging Certainly the expectation at a certain point in, in, in time post-World War II was we were, we were coming on to some other form of uh, global citizenry. Um, and I think, again, the metaphor of, of, of voting with your feet, that, or at least in terms of what you consume, we certainly are at, at a consumer basis. And I'm not talking just about what we wear, but in the movies, the books, the and the, the, com the commodities that we see, you know, the fact that we're on Zoom all over the world, you know, this one platform has taken over the whole world, means that identities are transforming constantly. So I, it's possible if, if some new forms of identity emerges that, that will, there'll be a, a fading of those connections. But at the same time, what, what we've been witnessing for the past couple of dec decades is an, a rise of sectarianism, a rise of ethnic identities, um, a rise of, kind of more fragmented uh, communities. Uh, and those two things are going to be contesting each other in some way. Yael. Yeah. 
The question I have here is based on what you've said and then also your response to Heidi. So on the one hand, you started off saying that you were trying to make sense of um, how as a broader function of socialization, these children were learning citizenship and their rights. And then I'm also thinking about what you said to Heidi that my understanding of that is that we have a lack of regionally grounded theories to explain phenomena like that or other phenomena related to family or children and youth. So if I'm wondering if you could say sort of what you've learned as much as you can disaggregate between things, um, trying to answer how the children learn their citizenship or rights. Was it what they learned in Lebanon? Was it a function, you know, more of what they learned in the US or Canada? Was it maybe more a function of um, cognitive changes, um, the result of migration, right? There's this whole area of literature now that we may change cognitively as a function of migration. Um, is it a result more of, you know, these psychological theories about child development, what age the child was or gender? And I know it's, it's very difficult to disaggregate, but if you yeah. could say what you've learned thinking about this problem that we don't have regionally based theories or very good ones. Uh, you, you know, that, that's a wonderful question. Uh, um, and it's material that I have waited to publish. Uh, I've been observing these children since 1994, and they're all adults now, and many of them are parents themselves now, uh, and they've scattered around around the world. They're no longer in, in the village, most of them. Um, and what I, I was looking at a very micro level, back to Tori's uh, question of uh, micro theories, and literally observing day-to-day -day interactions in terms of how children learn what they have a right to and what they don't have a right to, and how that was rationalized. And what I, what I found, and I was looking at, these were all under the age of 10 when I started, and some of them were newborns. <clears throat> what I found uh, was that almost always rights were, were rationalized in terms of relationships. You have a right to this because you are my daughter, or you have a right to this because she is your sister, or he's your, your brother. Uh, or you have a right to this because that teacher is committed to us, or we think of that teacher as an aunt uh, or, or, or an uncle. That rights were continually relationally uh, um, moralized or driven. It, they were not discussed in absolute terms. I am a citizen of this country and I am entitled to XYZ because I am a citizen of this country. Now, I, I have this wasta, this, this uh, uh, Zain, this leader I know, and because I know him, he's related to so-and-so's cousin or whatever, and that cousin is a friend of mine, and I think of that cousin as a brother, and that brother would lead me to the Sa'im. So even citizen rights, like I have a right to get my, these papers from this bureau because I'm a citizen of this country, and, and any citizen of this country should be able to go get these papers that they're entitled to from this bureau, took Wasta to achieve. And Wasta was the connection, was the relationship. And how are most relationships moralized through kinship idioms. Uh, I, I actually have a couple of papers where I give specific examples of that. That, has, that is still there. That is still there. And, you know, I did my field work in the 70s, we're in the 2020s, 50 years later, and it's still being, it, 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 it's still a driving force, is relationality. So how, what I 
as I said, I haven't published all of this because I was still trying to wrap up uh, the next generation, uh, or at least see how these people, now that they're adults and have children, how they're raising their children. But what I saw as rights was uh, uh, through a sense of connection to specific others, that, as opposed to an abstract set of principles. Now, it's not that, that, that a sense of abstract rights did not exist. I mean, they did exist, I and mean, people did say, did say that, you know, uh, and I'm a citizen, I, why, why am I not getting this given to me or whatever? They did say that, but in terms of actualizing their rights, in terms of trying to achieve their rights, it was mostly done through relationships. Um, and, and children learn from their parents that you get to have this because she's your cousin or he's your uh, uh, uncle or, or, or that the person may not be a member of the family, but we treat him like an, like an uncle or an aunt. So uh, that's, one of the, that's one of the ground up takeaways that I had. And so then the question becomes, okay, how do you theorize that? How do you understand rights as relational? How do you put that in the context of the kind of state formation? How do you, how do you see that working itself out in the economy, in the marketplace? And that ultimately takes a lot of people doing a lot of research in different locations and having conversations with each other, each of whom are you know, working ground up to then build the, from the micro theory uh, to the uh, more generative um, macro theory. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But I, but I, I you know, I think we're having, we, there are some wonderful ethnographies that are coming out that are giving us much richer uh, descriptions of these ground up uh, experiences of what it is to be um, a citizen or, or a member of family or what it is to be masculine, what it is to be a woman, etc. that uh, we, that will lead to those uh, larger theories. Thank you uh, for that question. Tori. Thanks for the answer. And then Huda, after two. I just wanted to say to everybody, thank you for your presence. I must go teach my section on the anthropology of sexualities. Uh, it was lovely hearing everybody's comments and I'll look forward to more discussions. Thank um, you, Tori. Dylan, are you okay taking over? And thank you so much. Sorry. Of course, happy thank to you. take over. Bye, Tori. Bye, Tori, thank you. Huda, you had a question? Yes, hi, um, thank you. Um, I was just wondering, in reference, you mentioned that it's really important that we have more grounded work in the region. Um, and I'm wondering how we can do that, specifically in countries where there is still so much political turmoil, while navigating issues of security and like risk of personal safety. Yeah, Huda, where do you want to work? What country? Uh, well, my, I, I want to work in Egypt. Um, so that's what I have in mind. Yeah, well, as you know, it's very risky these days. Um, <clears throat> I mean, life-threatening life risky. Uh, I, I'm just putting together with Zena Zatari and Lina Miyari uh, an edited book on the politics of engaged transformative gender research. And it, it's it, all of it, there are nine chapters, and all of the chapters are women researchers re doing research in their own countries, overwhelmingly confronting questions of securitization, militarizations, uh, autocratic regimes and and how do they do research under those conditions uh, we hope to have that done uh, it'll probably come out next year we hope to have it uh, submitted 
in the next couple of months. Uh, so it's something I've been thinking about, uh, as well as the reality of on the, on the ground. And most of my field work has been in Lebanon, which has been generally much more open. Um, you, you, can, you can navigate in, in a way that's uh, 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 more possible than in a country like Egypt. Uh, Jordan is also a highly securitized country and, and so forth. So um, I, I think the, I, I think one has to establish relationships locally that first and foremost for your own security so that you don't, so that people know where you are. Uh, when one of my students was doing research in Lebanon, when things were a bit of a turmoil, and I, I asked her to not go out unless she made sure every single time she told somebody where she was, where she was going, and gave them contact information. Um, she didn't always do that, <laughs> but I think, you know, if, you know, depending on the level of concern, whether it's security concerns or concerns of instability and that uh, the, the idea of the, the, the Lone Ranger going off on their own is probably not as wise uh, now. You want to be connected. You want to make sure that people know you and you know uh, uh, other people and, and that people know where you are. Uh, the other thing that I think is often important is that you, know, you, you have to be careful with your computers. Computers can be seized. And so you have to figure out ways of storing data that gives you um, backup, uh, whether you send these um, ahead, uh, you know, find other ways of, of exporting them so that you come to an airport and your computer is not seized on you, for example. And that's happened to some, um, some students. Um, so I, I think fieldwork is possible. It's not for everybody now. But I think probably one of the most important things in carrying out fieldwork in many of these countries now is making sure that you establish your connections uh, and that those connections assure your security first and foremost, and that you assure in whatever ways you can the people around you uh, that your, your presence is benign. You know? And for human subjects protocols, you usually have to get written consent in some conditions, you can't get written consent because that would create so much suspicion that you would never be allowed to interview people or, or hang around people. Well, human subjects uh, committees, institutional review board committees, do understand those kinds of conditions, and uh, they will help you work around that. Uh, and one of the projects I, I said specifically, I'm not going to be able to do written consent because that would, that would frighten everybody. So they allowed me to do verbal consent. So there, there are things that you have to accommodate uh, to protect your subjects uh, and make them feel protected. Uh, the people that you're working, your interlocutors, the people you're working with, and also to protect yourself. I, I don't know if that it's on all the things you were, some of the things that you're asking about, Hudi. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. So, uh, do we have uh, time for a couple more questions? I'm fine if anybody else has a question. Anybody want to jump in? Is somebody there? Gabby? Did you, uh, I, did you want to make a, ask a question, Gabby? 
or you just just you just saying hi? Yeah, just just coming in. Here. Okay, okay. Uh, anybody else have a comment or a question? Ruth. Yeah, um, thank you so much for this talk and thank you so much um, for allowing it to be open to everyone. I think that's really great, especially during COVID. Um, my question was, what do you see as the gaps in um, the Arab families literature? Very, very interesting question. Yeah, I, I think one of the areas that has not been explored as, uh, as closely as needed to be is sister, sister to sister relationships. I look at specific relationships. Uh, there's just a few articles that are focus on sister to sister relationships. Um, and uh, you know, most of the work has been on brother to brother relationships because of the patriarchy. Uh, but in fact, it's been more abstracted work, but detailed empirical work that is ethnographically rich is really needed on those relationships as well. I think we need to know a lot more about extended kin and precisely how extended kin operate within these families. Because the, as I mentioned in the book, the, uh, the boundaries of the families are very, very fluid. Who is, who is in the household, who's considered family, who's not considered family, at any one moment in time is constantly uh, changing. So it would be very useful to see the flow of people in and out of, uh, of quote, uh, the, the family or the, uh, at least the place of residence and how those relationships take shape once they're co-residing as opposed to when they're not uh, co-residing. Uh, and uh, I, 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 what I see emerging is much more bilateral, a bilaterality. I think it probably has always been there, uh, even though it's a so uh, it's a patrilineal society, meaning that people take their father's name, they take their father's citizenship, they they basically take, follow their father's religion, uh, that sort of uh, lineal descent of identity and and uh, rights. In reality, on the ground. It's been very bilateral uh, in, in many, many countries with, um, with mom's family and, lateral, and maternal kin, uh, not only active, but often very powerful. It often has more to do with where the wealth is, where the resources are, where the numbers are. If the maternal side is a, it's a very large family, that can have a tremendous amount of power that uh, um, makes it much more bilateral or even more than just by that. Um, so I, I, I think we need more research on, you know, this larger uh, rubric of um, relationality. And I'm also very interested in seeing more research being carried out on family as idiom, how idiomatic family generates morality, generates responsibility, generates rights, I've been struck over the years that relationships that come to be called brother-sister relationships or aunt and uncle relationships are very compelling and really call forth the responsibilities and the entitlements that family relationships do. Obviously not all of them, but the ones that are really deeply engaged. I, 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 I've myself experienced you know, people who, who think of me as a sister expecting things from me that 
in some ways my own sister doesn't, uh, my own bio biological sister doesn't expect from me. Uh, so I think we need to understand more not only how idiomatic kinship works on those intimate, in those intimate relationships, but how idiomatic kinship works discursively, how it is mobilized in the marketplace, how it's mobilized in the, in the political arenas. Uh, it it is still remains the case that, uh, that political leaders use family idioms to moralize and justify and rationalize and empower themselves in, the, in their uh, political positions. Why is that? Why in 2020 haven't we figured out other kinds of idioms that are as powerful? Uh, I, I think uh, there was a brief period in which we had certain socialist idioms like comrade. They didn't take off. <laughs> they didn't become global. Uh, um, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's a worthwhile study to look at the power of the idioms of kinship and to see where they are trafficked, how do they travel, and where do they take root, and how do they actually, uh, how do they become generative of behavior. Gabby. Hi, um, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, that, the point about the idioms and discourse of family um, got me thinking about um, the kind of what's been very popular in anthropology lately around like the more than human um, and relationships with non-humans and a lot of that words like kin relations kinship has been coming up a lot in that literature but it feels um very separate from some of these kind of anthropology of the family and actually particularly the question of like how um uh the Middle East and the Arab world, which has very specific environmental relations, has actually kind of been left out a lot of that conversation. So since I know you also have separate projects on sustainability, and I'm wondering what you see as like possible connections between these kind of discourses of the family and discourses of family with non-human or the environment. Um, and then also like if there's frictions there, like why hasn't that connection between these kind of, not just bodies of literatures, but like political projects been made more strongly in the Arab world. Yeah, um, the, the social sciences are, are taking off in the Arab region in the past couple of decades in a way that they hadn't been as uh, well-rooted uh, in, in the 60s or 70s when I began my field work. Uh, it's still the case overwhelmingly the social scientists who uh, do research uh, in the region, whether they are from the region, live in the region, or come from the outside. Overwhelmingly, they've still been trained outside of the region. Overwhelmingly, it's still it's still the case. Uh, probably the most the the largest fields are political science and sociology. Anthropology is still emerging uh, as as a field locally in, in the region, and so I think part, I mean, and, and the founding of the Arab Council for the Social Sciences, I think, has been a big boom for the region. It's, it's housed in Beirut, and it has been a tremendous uh, uh, institution in supporting social science research, get, bringing so, science, social scientists together, uh, and bringing not only <coughs> social scientists of the region together, but cross-region. They're working with uh, the Latin American Studies Association, they're working with uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, they're working with 
South Asia and East Asia. So those kinds of connections that your question implies, I think uh, this is a fertile moment for them. Uh, uh, and I think that those will be will be happening. When when I was a young scholar coming up in the field, it was rarely the case that anybody read anything that was written in the region. <clears throat> it just wasn't it was circulated. The big transformation was with Edward Said and his work, and and he, I think, in terms of literature and in terms of uh, the social sciences brought the history, especially the political, the colonial history, the imperial history, and the impact of that history <clears throat> on uh, literature, on society, on uh, the conditions on the ground. Brought that to to Western scholars in a way that no previous uh, work had done. <clears throat> so I think there is a, the post-Saidian world, if you will. <clears throat> is much more aware of the literature that's coming out of the region of the Middle East uh, uh, in English, French, and Arabic, those are the dominant languages. <clears throat> Specifically, the connections you're, you're asking about the human and the non-human and why kin kinship or the idioms of kinship are used there. Uh, try to think of what other kinship, what other discourse can we use? Are you going to call that animal a comrade, you're gonna call that animal, you might call him my friend, uh, but the idiom of kinship still is powerful. It's, it's, it's dazzling to me, actually, to think of how, how powerful the idiom of kinship is that we use it politically. I mean, on, on the street, you want someone as you're close to, you want to say, we call somebody bro. Why do we call somebody bro all the time? You know, what is that? And, and that's, you know, you know, heavy rap modern term, but still, was it based in? It's based in kinship terminology. Uh, you know, cells that emerge, whether they're political or religious or um, uh, social movement, you develop kinship-like relationships within those, uh, those units, those, those uh, uh, activist-oriented uh, communities. Um, so I, I, I think the language of kinship uh, has served the past few centuries in a way that no other language, no other set of idioms has. Will it serve in the future? I don't know. I think that is the question before us, is whether the language of kinship, the idioms, the moralities, the entitlements, the expectations that it brings with it, uh, whether that will continue to serve uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure, but I don't see on the horizon anything uh, displacing it, whether we're talking about ecologies. Uh, you know, we think of uh, the, the you know, sustainable communities that we're trying to develop as families, <laughs> as, as communities of, of kin uh, of, a, of, a, of another sort. Um, so I, I think that more work will be done on those different theoretical bodies, bringing them together in the coming period ahead. Your own work, Gabby, uh, coming from a training in geography, but trans, you know, working in history and in anthropology at the same time. Um, I think it will be people with your kind of cross-training that will be uh, doing it, as well as people who are having these conversations across regions 
there, there was a seminar just recently that brought together Latin American Studies Association with the Arab Council of Social Sciences, and it was uh, the uh, seminar Zoom was was shared with. Um, I happen to be on the board of the Arab Council for Social Sciences, and Sethri Shami, who is the director and happens to be an anthropologist and uh, from Jordan, who lives in Beirut, um, uh, was bringing together bodies of literature, bodies of research across the regions to share specifically from the Arab region to the Latin American region. And those sorts of things are happening um, in ways that are very exciting and productive and I think boundary breaking. We're, I want to put in one little note here. <clears throat> I don't take family as a thing, as something, a specific unit or a bounded set of personnel in any way at all. I think family is a highly fluid uh, and changeable category. Uh, and it's a category that gets uh, transformed by the nature of the state that it's in, by the kind of economies that are, that are uh, um, viable. Um, so I want us to be, be cautious about assuming a thingness there, a thereness there, to us, any kind of specificity. What's, what's to me, what it was in fact is so durable about it is its very flexibility. The fact that it, it transforms constantly. And especially I want to caution against what I call categorical thinking, thinking in categories and assuming that those categories have a material reality outside of the way in which we invent those categories. Categories are of our making, whether that category is something like the family or whether that category is something like a nation or whether that category is a race or an ethnic group or a religion. We invent those categories. Uh, and we, when we give them a materiality beyond their spe the specificity of the historical moment and we project onto history uh, that those categories have always been in existence, such as family or specific uh, nationalities, etc., cetera, uh, then we do a disservice to the historicity of category, categories. We slip into what I call categorical thinking. So I would caution against assuming that categories uh, have a material existence apart from their social and historical context in which they get constructed and, and mobilized uh, for, for various uses and purposes. That makes sense. Anyone else want to jump in or comment or question? Yeah, it seems like Nazan has a question. Nazan, you can turn on your microphone camera. Okay. Um, so I will take it back to children a little bit. You know, this anecdote that you talked about children calling 911 was kind of amazing. Um, and it, it felt like, I mean, I heard it like, you know, the ch these children were assumed somehow more empowered in their migrant community in the US as opposed to what was back there and the fact that it became a story in the village or in the neighborhood is also interesting you know this gives us a maybe a possibility to this to discuss how what was expected of children what was not expected of children so this <laughs> whole 911 story was um, 
kind of opening uh, ideas for me. And in the case of, I mean, going back to, I think it was um, Yael who made the point that how children learn about citizenship, not necessarily children, but in the situations of migration. Um, and you said it's mostly relational, you know, it's established through relations. But I, for instance, feel here in Germany, you know, as this like migrant family with two small kids coming from Turkey to Germany, um, I, I can't imagine them calling 911, that's for sure. Um, but I also feel like they have more of a universal sense of their rights. You know, especially they have this like child's news every day, 10 minutes. And there they constantly learn about constitutional rights, children's rights, what they are supposed to receive, what not. And so they have kind of this sense of their universal, uh, what they are entitled to in a sense. And that I find completely different from this like relational understanding of, you know, some kids deserve that and get that and some not etc so maybe this is i mean coming to this like western democracy kind of thing it's uh something else but i definitely see how they're different in a sense when we go back to turkey when we can go back to turkey in their conversations with children there i'm curious when you go back to turkey Nazan, what are the, uh, what are the conversations with the children how are they different I mean, one thing that is very uh, clear with them is, you know, here in terms of this educational system and what is suggested and what we, as parents do, we don't have, for instance, the TV on kind of the TV on life is not for us. We have it, as I said, 10 minutes children reporting. But when they go, they're fascinated by the fact that the TV can be on all day. And this, the friends there brag about, you know, this TV kind of thing. And then you have the toys, you know, I mean, grandparents having uh, all these budgets to buy children huge gifts for their birthdays and everything. Whereas here, birthdays are really small events, you know, and they end up getting books for their birthdays in that sense. So they have this kind of um, differences. But they also say that, you know, I mean, my older boy is in third grade and they have elections in the classroom, you know, to, uh, to be elected in the, in the class board, etc. And this was uh, new for the child in Istanbul because they didn't have elections in the class, things like that, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's very interesting uh, to go back to the 911. <clears throat> the idea that a child can call the uh, uh, authorities against their own parents can only exist in a world that sees the child separate from the parents and that sees the child as separate from the family. It can only exist in a world where there's something called children's rights that are separate from and independently held from family rights. Uh, otherwise, it would be inconceivable. And I think that's one of the reasons the 911 story was so shocking in the village. It's inconceivable, uh, at least at that time, it was inconceivable that 
that, uh, that a, a child would have uh, author would have rights to go to a, a state authority separate from the parents. That, that just was unimaginable in the in the village. And, and so I think what you what we're talking about is a different notion of selfhood that's being socialized. There's a notion of selfhood being socialized in the schools in Germany, where you are, or New Jersey, where these families were, <clears throat> were specifically mandated to create individuals. You, you get graded as an individual. You get stars as an individual. You perform as an individual. Uh, you are expected to, uh, to uh, take on an identity as an individual. You're, you're, who you are is not supposed to be because of who your family is, but because of who you are. Uh, there's a there's a thereness to to the you that's supposed to be separate from the thereness to the mom or the dad or the brothers and the sisters in the American or the German. And it seems to me from the way you're describing it that in the German experience of your children, it's even much more developed. Uh, they're being taught rights and citizenship and entitlements uh, that they have as individuals uh, and rationalized universally. Uh, uh, it, it, th those sorts of things are, you know, what a, a child's rights are, it's not that they're not taught in the Lebanese schools, but they, they are not lived in the same way. They are not, uh, they, they don't get embraced as this is, me and I can, I can, uh, regardless of what you want, I have the right to have this or that. I mean, th that way of thinking is is not very common in the uh, classes that in which I did my research, urban working class, and in this village that is, uh, I would say, middle lower middle class middle class uh, village. Um, that isn't to say again that that notion is absent in Lebanon or other periods of the, of the Arab world. It's certainly present. You find it in, in certain classes, uh, certain educated circles, especially, uh, depending on the kind of education they have. Uh, but we, what, what it comes down, what, what the foundational difference is, what is the kind of self that is being socialized in those schools? What kind of self does the state curriculum want to produce. You have a state curriculum in Germany that is being followed by those teachers. And in Germany, it's a, it's a literally federal level curriculum. In the United States, it's state by state. The federal government does not put a curriculum. It was one of the, one of the authorities delegated to the states at the time of the constitution was education. So each state sets up its own curriculum. And some states are more rigorous in the kind of curriculum that they produce, and some states are more flexible, uh, but it's done, it's done at the state level, not at the, at the federal level. But in either case, there is a curriculum, and behind the curriculum, there is a notion of the subject. Who is the citizen that we're trying to produce? And to produce that subject, to produce that citizen, you have to produce a certain notion of selfhood. And what you're describing, that your children are being introduced to in Germany is a very different notion of selfhood than I observed in the religion of Lebanon. So it's, it's not a matter of whether one is right or wrong, it's just that's what's happening in Germany. That's what the German state is trying to produce. This is what's happening in Lebanon. When the state has, has a curriculum in Lebanon, 
but the curriculum is nowhere near as systematically um, enforced as, as the curriculum would be in Germany, for example. So I, I think at, at, at stake here is uh, to what degree is the state very proactive in producing its own citizenry or the kind of citizens it wants, and therefore producing the kind of subjects and selfhoods that it needs to produce that kind of citizen. That makes sense? Okay, where are we? I noticed Susan Davis is there. Susan, how are you? Are there, uh, are there any other questions out there? I was just, this is Susan Davis. I was just trying to unmute. Hi, Suad. Hi, good to see your uh, name up there. Yeah, I can't, my computer doesn't have a camera. Don't but worry. It's really fine. nice to have this opportunity. And I wanted to sort of say to everybody, your discussion at the beginning about how it was with no feminism, no women's studies, no women. I just, or Morocco of sort of old time anthropology or anthropology through the ages and said when I did my dissertation on Moroccan women, sort of like you, I didn't intend to go there for that. I wanted to. I wanted to work on women after being in the Peace Corps. Um, I was told not to apply for money. I wouldn't get any for women. So I did either patron-client relations or push-pull migration. I, it was so exciting. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> I got there, did women. My advisor said it was okay. I sent him a long, long uh, outline. I got back, and you know what? Fulbright wanted my grant money back. They wanted it refunded. <laughs> and that was a good thing that my advisor, Bill Shorter, did for me. He defended me. And that dissertation, which actually I turned in, and they didn't like it. It wasn't complicated enough. So I beefed it up with a bunch of obscure terms and turned it in. They took it. Then I turned in the first one as Patience in Power, my first book on Moroccan women. <laughs> and that, that worked as a book. So the times have changed so much. And it's so wonderful, the kind of things you're doing, you know, getting really into depth in things. And you've been so inspirational. I also talked about setting up women's groups to talk to each other about our research on women and your work with Association for Middle East Women's Studies has been terrific. So having colleagues to work on this kind of thing and just you see from your discussion here is great to be able to talk about things. Thank you, Susan. Susan is one of the uh, first uh, anthropologists to actually do work on youth. Your early work on youth in Morocco was very important, Susan. Thank you. And Susan was one of the early presidents of the Association for Middle East Women's Studies which uh, we established in 1985. And wow. 35 years old, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, yep. Now it has a journal, right? The Journal of Middle East Women's Studies is the journal of the Association for Middle East Women's Studies. Yep, and I, I thought we shouldn't do it, nobody would be interested, and it, I was so wrong. <laughs> and yeah. it's so wonderful to go open up a volume and you wanna read everything, it's terrific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a journey, establishing that organization and the journey, that journal that is now probably the leading journal for Middle East Women's Studies is, is Jim Hughes. Quite a history there, Susan. Yep, yep, it's been a great uh, voyage with you. <laughs> <laughs> and with you, my friend. Um, comments, questions, anyone? Anything else? Then. Well, I 
I think if there's nothing else, uh, we'll take the time to thank Suad so much for closing out the uh, AMC's author series. Uh, this has been great. We thank you so much. And um, everybody stay tuned to next spring, uh, where we'll have another lineup. Uh, we'll continue with this format, pandemic or not. Um, so thanks a lot, Suad. And uh, thanks to everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice to see you. Great. Thank you. Let me stop the recording. Take care.